This morning's reading is from Psalm 73. Surely God is good, but as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold, for I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and have washed my hands in innocence. All day long I have been afflicted, and every morning brings new punishments. If I had spoken out like that, I would have betrayed your children. When I tried to understand all this, it troubled me deeply till I entered the sanctuary of God. Then I understood. When my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you. Yet I am always with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will take me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. As I said in an email I sent out on Friday, this morning is part two of a message that I gave uh, three weeks ago now. But actually, it's ending up being more like part three, because Logan picked up the same thread last week. Uh, And what we've been talking about, to, to catch you up if you haven't been here, is uh, three weeks ago I talked about being angry with God, and I tried to make the case that you should be angry with God. It was was this argument, and it was a different sermon than I've ever given before. I'm often trying to make a case on Sundays, but usually I'm trying to make a case for God or a case against you, uh, often, often both at the same time. And this was the first time that I've ever switched teams. I switched teams, switched sides, and I tried to make the case against God and in defense of you, saying, you have every right to be mad at him. And the, the argument in a sentence was, why, why should you be mad at God? A, because the world is a really messed up place, and B, because God made the world. So that's it. You should be mad at him. And then last week, uh, Logan, you know, if I was talking about anger, Last week, Logan was, one way you can think about it is he was saying, well, what happens when you get tired of being angry and you just want to give up? You know, he talked about darkness, the spiritual darkness that can descend upon a person. He referred to the, the ultimate expression of that uh, with a person wanting to take their own life, but also talked about how for a lot of people, even if it never reaches that extreme, it's still there. There's this darkness, this heaviness that, that's there and you don't talk about it. And what it is, he, he talked about, it's, it's a sense of God's absence, which goes back to the whole thing of the world being a messed up place and being angry of God. It's, it's the sense of God's absence. You know, when a tragedy happens, either personal tragedy or a big global tragedy, that the question that people ask is, where was God? Where was God? Because the worst day of my life, and he didn't show up. He didn't show up on the worst day of my life. And it's all through the Psalms. That question is all through the Psalms. You know, this is a series we're doing this summer on the book of Psalms. Well, it's very appropriate, given how prevalent this question is in Psalms, that we would take three weeks on this theme because they just ask this over and over and over again. "Uh, God, where'd you go? In their language, it's, why do you stand so far off? So that's what we were talking about the first two weeks. And this was supposed to be the wrap-up week. And it is going to be the wrap-up week, but it's going to look a little bit different 
than I thought it was going to look when I sent out an email about this on, on Friday morning. So on Friday, I sent out an email saying, uh, you know, we've had these two depressing weeks, and this is going to be the week of, of light and of hope. I said, we're going to step out of the darkness and into the light. I even called it Victory Sunday in the, uh, in the subject line. And I want to retract that email. Um, <laughs> I was just in way, way too good a mood when I wrote it. Never write a, a mass email when you're in a really good mood. It's just, it's, you're just going to have to you know, go back on it later. Uh, I think there is victory and hope and light in Christ. And I think there are these answers in the Bible. I do believe in victory. And in fact, you know, uh, I was joking about being in too good a mood, but more seriously, I think the reason I wrote that email is because I've been in a time of, of victory and hope and light recently. You know, this, this has been happening for me, and so I, you know, I thought, I want to share this. But then, the more I thought about it, the more I, I realized, well, just because it happened for me, it doesn't mean I can make it happen for you. And even though I believe in victory, I don't believe you can schedule it. I don't, I don't think you can put Victory Sunday on the calendar. Um, so I, I'm not going to do that. What I want to do instead is I want to go back to <laughs> when I go back to what we talked about in week one of this series, and I want to talk about what I was trying to do in week one, and then talk about why, if I had preached the sermon I was going to preach, why that would actually undermine what I was trying to do in week one and be counterproductive. That's what I want to talk about today. You say, wait, 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 wait. What you want to talk about today? is what you were trying to do in the sermon you already preached and why you're not going to preach this other sermon that you were going to preach. Yes. And you say, well, where in between the old sermon and the scrapped sermon is this week's sermon? Uh, which is a very perceptive question, and the answer is, I'm not totally sure, but somewhere in here, hopefully, there'll be something helpful, something, some, some takeaway, potentially. Now, we got to talk about two different groups of people separately because, again, the, the, we're talking about what I was trying to do before and how I, I don't want to undermine it. And actually, three weeks ago, I was trying to do two different things, two totally opposite things for two different groups of people. So I want to talk about those two groups separately, group one and group two. And those will be, in terms of structure, those will be the two sections this morning. First, talking about group one, and then second, talking about group two. So, group one. Who's the first group of people I had in mind three weeks ago when I was talking about being angry with God? The first group is those of you who are suffering and those of you who have suffered and those of you who have seriously doubted God's goodness. Seriously doubted God's goodness because of the things you've seen in your own life or the life of family and friends or maybe just you know certain very sensitive souls can get to this place just by reading the newspaper. Most people can't, but if you're really sensitive, just by reading the newspaper, you get to this place of feeling like God is not doing a good job, and he's not good. And for that group of people, my goal in that first sermon was to comfort you and to try to validate your feelings. Now, I don't know if I succeeded in that goal. I don't know if I did comfort you or not, but that's what I was trying to do. And I was trying to do it by, from up front, saying out loud in church, these charges against God, that everybody who has a heartbeat and is really human, these things that everybody has felt, saying them and not answering them. 
not defending God. That was the whole idea. Why? Because if you start out saying, well, here's how you may feel. Here's why you may be mad at God because of this suffering and that and the other. First 15 minutes. But second 15 minutes, here's why God is still good. A, B, C, 1, 2, 3, Romans 8, 28, John 3, 16, walk out happy. Well, then I'm not validating your feelings. You know, then I'm saying you can be, you can be angry at God for 15 minutes just as long as you, you get over it by the end of the sermon. I didn't want to do that. But then when I was trying to, to write the follow-up in defense of God, I, it just kept feeling like that. It just kept feeling like what I didn't want to do. The ABC, one, two, three, and here's the defense of why God is good. And I realized that you don't need to hear it from me. You need to hear it from him. Me saying it, me saying, here's the truth. Here's the truth about God. That's very different from you actually feeling it and believing it. There's one takeaway for anybody this morning. It's that it does not matter one iota what you say you believe. You know, Christians are particularly bad about this. But everybody does it. I mean, they do it about politics. They do it about all kinds of things. They say, well, I believe this. Well, you think you believe that, but you don't. You just say you believe it. And what matters is what you are fully persuaded of in your own heart. People say they believe all kinds of things they don't, and they actually believe all kinds of things they don't realize. It doesn't matter if I tell you, here's the truth about God. What matters is you coming to hear that from him. And what I didn't want to be like, you know, we talked about this in the, the first two parts of this little mini-series. I didn't want to be like Job's friends. And I talked about a few weeks ago, Job's friends have the right answers. They have the truth, but it doesn't do Job any good. So what I want for you, if you resonated with part one, if you resonated with these charges against God, and you feel like, yeah, that's how I felt, what I want for you is not to hear me give you some answers, but rather to keep seeking God for answers keep walking this path that we've talked about. I talked about it week one. Logan talked about it again last week. And the path is prayer. So it's appropriate that we're talking about this during these 60 days of prayer. The path is prayer. It's taking your case to God. And like I said in week one, it's, it's saying the very worst things you can think of to God. It's yelling at God. It's writing him an angry letter. It's being as honest with him as you can, and that's prayer, and what's great about it is it, it actually solves your problems with prayer. So you, you have these other problems, but at least you don't have the prayer problem anymore, because the problem that people have with prayer, like Matt talked about a couple weeks ago, is they don't know what to pray, they don't know how to pray, it feels fake, it feels forced, it lacks energy. Well, all those problems immediately go away if you talk to God about your pain. Your pain becomes an entry point to real prayer, and then it's not boring anymore. You know, it may hurt, but at least it's not boring. You know, people say, I'm bored by prayer. Well, how bored do you think God is by your prayers? I mean, he has to sit there listening to you drone on and on about nothing, and then all of a sudden you're like, oh, by the way, God, let me tell you how you really screwed up. Then he's like, oh, well, at least this is interesting. You know, like, I... Now I'm engaged. Now, now I want to hear what they have to say. It solves your prayer problem. It's real prayer all of a sudden. You just keep shouting. You keep yelling. You keep banging on God's door. 
And if you do, then what the Psalms show us, what Job shows us, what has been the experience of all sorts of men and women today, if you keep shouting, eventually he will speak. He will respond. And then you hush up. And like I alluded to in week one, it's inevitable that once God speaks, you will realize that you were wrong about a lot of things. You say, wait a minute. I thought the whole point was to, to validate my feelings and to say that my accusations against God were legitimate. And now you're saying that they're wrong, so, so which is it? It can't be both. But it can be both. It can be both. A, a way to, to put it succinctly would be to say that it's right to be mad at God, but when you're mad at God, you're never right. It's always right to be mad at God, but when you're mad at God, you're never right. So two different senses of the word right. It's right to be mad at God morally, spiritually, relationally. It's the right thing to do. It's the right move because a human being can't help but be mad at God and you have to be honest with him. It's right to be mad at God. But when you're mad at God, you're never right. It's always that you're missing something. You know, if you think about like a, a marriage as the example we've been using, it's right to fight. You have to fight. In fact, it's wrong not to fight. Something's seriously wrong if you're not fighting. But when you're fighting with your spouse, you're, you can never both be right about everything. If you were, there wouldn't be anything to, to fight about. One of you has to be wrong about something, and always both of you are wrong about something in some way. But when you're fighting with God, it's, not, it's never that he's missing something. It's never that he's like, oh, I didn't, I didn't see that. It's always that you didn't see something. But I can't show you what that is. And if I did, you'd just be mad at me. You, you have to let God show you what that is, and he will if you, if you demand it, like Job did, and like the psalmist did. And then it's great, you know, the, the psalmist in this morning's scripture reading, he starts out saying, surely my feet had almost, or surely God is good, as Israel, good to Israel, but I didn't feel that way. My feet had almost slipped. In other words, I had almost given up on it altogether. And then by the end, he says, whom have I in heaven but you? There's nothing on earth I desire besides you. In other words, fight's over, you know, and it's like makeup sex. It's better than ever now, you know. He's, after going through the intimacy of the fight, now more than ever, he, he's so in love with God. And that's the point that you can get to, but only God can, can bring you to that place. And you have to fight with him about it. We've been cautioning throughout, be very careful other people who you talk to. Because most people can't handle it. You know, there's two things that can go wrong. Either one, they're going to hurt you by saying something dumb. Nine times out of ten, if you share something really honest with somebody else about how you're angry with God, nine times out of ten, they'll say something stupid in response that's unhelpful. So that's the one reason you've got to be careful. But then the other reason you have to be careful is in the psalm, uh, the Asaph says this is really perceptive comment. He said, if I had spoken out like this, he, you know, he pours out his heart to God about why God is so terrible. And then he says, if I had spoken out like this to everybody else, I would have betrayed your children. Very mature thing to say. What he's saying is, I don't need to spew all my anger over everybody else. It's just going to hurt them. You know, this isn't their issue. And what we've been saying is you have to take your complaint to the manager. You have to go to the top with it. You have to talk to him about it 
And I do believe that for you, victory and hope and stepping into the light is possible, but you have to walk that path. And I don't want to short circuit it. I don't want to short circuit it by trying to give you the answers because what you need is not the answers. What you need is God. And that's the beauty of the whole thing is that he wants to have a relationship with you. You know, what's the good news in all of this? The good news is not, well, here's the answer from the Bible or from philosophy about why God isn't bad after all. That's just a logical argument. That's not the good news. The good news is that the God of the universe wants to know you. He wants to have a relationship with you. And your anger can be a pathway to that relationship. That's the first half of the discussion this morning. And the first group that I was talking to three weeks ago, those of you who have suffered, those of you who have been angry with God, and I wanted to validate that anger, and I also want to encourage you to press into it. Don't deny it, but press into it and use it as a way to connect with God. That's group one. Now for the second half of the discussion, group two. Another group of people I was thinking about three weeks ago. And that's those of you who have never really felt the way that that I was speaking. And you've never seriously doubted God's goodness. You've never seriously been angry with God. You've never seriously felt like this whole thing is a cruel joke. And often that's because you've been in church and you've you've heard all the, the right answers. And so when I was talking last or three weeks ago and saying here's all the reasons why why God is to blame all you were thinking about was well no because of this that and the other you know you were defending God in your head so what was my goal for that group of people my goal for that group of people three weeks ago by accusing God like that and intentionally not defending him not giving the answers my goal for that group of people was to offend you and and confuse you and upset you. That's what I was trying to do. And when I say trying, I don't like, I mean trying. So, you know, sometimes I'll say, uh, I'm going to say this, and, you know, I'm trying to help some of you, but it might offend others of you. Well, their offense is just, you know, it's a byproduct. It's an undesirable thing that I can't control, but we're going to take it anyway. That's not what I'm saying here. I'm saying here that uh, out of my intentionally, out of my pastoral heart of love for you, I wanted to upset you and confuse you. And I want to explain why that is. I want to explain why it's so important. But first, let me just say that that's why I don't want to talk about the answers this week. Because just like for the, the group that I wanted to comfort in week one, well, then if I come back in week two and just give you the pat answers, well, then now you're going to be offended. And that's not what I want to do. I want to continue to comfort you. I, don't want, to, I want to double down. Those of you who before were offended, if I come back in the second part and give you all the answers, then I risk you being comforted. You know, then you might feel better. You feel like, well, I'm glad at least he, he said all the answers. I, th- I'm, I was worried my pastor wasn't a Christian. You know, I thought I was going to have to teach him some things, but uh, shouldn't have taken him three weeks to, to say it, but I'm glad he, glad he said the truth. Well, no, that's, that's not what I want. I want you to be upset still. And, and here's why. Uh, I've been around church my whole life. And what I have found is that church has this terrible tendency to, to make people fake and emotionally dishonest. Why is that? 
Well, the, the reason for that is actually kind of uh, subtle and surprising. So it, it doesn't happen because of you know, falsehood or wrong thinking. It, church makes people <laughs> fake and emotionally dishonest actually because of the best parts about Christianity, because of the best parts about Scripture. It's because Christianity offers truth and light and hope. That's the problem. Now, those things aren't problems in themselves. The problem is when people skip. When people skip to the truth and the answers and the light and the hope without having ever struggled with the questions and the darkness and the despair. And if you do that, then it makes you emotionally stunted and it makes you dangerous to other people. You know what it's called? You know what it's called when you just skip straight to the answers? It's called cheating. It's called cheating. And it's not the point. It's not the point of any of it. You know, it's like you skip to the end of the book and just read the last chapter. Or you, uh, you know, watch the last 15 minutes of the movie and you haven't gone through the middle part where it looks like all hope is lost. And, you know, when I say skip to the end of the book, that's actually, that's not just a metaphor. That's, that's literally what you're doing. You are literally skipping to the end of the literal book. I'm, uh, we're doing this reading plan this summer through the New Testament. And I don't have any problem with reading just the New Testament. It's, it's great, and it, it can be a good entry point, a good way to get hooked on, on reading Scripture. However, it's important to remember that the New Testament is the end of the book. Is the end of the book. And most of the book, most of the Bible is just very confusing and very depressing. And, you know, people, people say, well, the Bible is an instruction manual for how to live. Well, kind of, it's more just this devastating portrayal of how royally screwed we are. And if you haven't put in the work and slogged through that, then the one thing I will stand by that I said in that email on Friday is, well, then the hope of Jesus just rings hollow. It just feels fake because you haven't gone through the rest. It's like if you, you know, back to the same analogy from a second ago, if you read just the last few chapters of the Lord of the Rings trilogy, you know, over and over and over again, and never read the whole rest of the book. C.S. Lewis, in his review of Lord of the Rings, when it first came out, first published, glowing review, he said this will go down as one of the great works of all time, which obviously he was right about. But what he says, he, he has this great comment, observation. He said, the predominant feeling I had while reading the books was anguish. And that's the Bible. If you are reading the Bible openly and honestly, the predominant feeling you should have while reading it is anguish. It's anguish. And then there's some hope. And that hope can be real because you've gone through the struggle instead of cheating. You know, life is a puzzle. It's a math problem. And if you've never felt like, I don't know if you remember this, experience in school where if you had a really hard math problem and you've been working on it for so long and you get so frustrated and finally you conclude this this must be a trick question you know the teacher just put this on here to screw with us and to see how long we would spend on it this is an impossible problem there's no answer and then you turn all your anger toward the teacher if you've never felt like that toward God about life, if you've never turned all your anger toward the teacher and felt like this has to be a joke, this has to be a trick, if you've never felt like that 
deeply and honestly. It means one of three things. A, it could mean that you're, you're stupid, just, you know, unintelligent. I mean, I don't, I, don't mean that, I don't mean that as an insult. I just mean it could be one of the causes. It could be that, um, you know, if, if, you're, if you're unintelligent and you see the problem, you, don't, you, you could be so unintelligent that you don't even see why it's difficult. You don't see the hard part. You're just like, oh, that's, that's easy because you're not smart enough to understand it. So it could be that. It's probably not. It's probably one of the, the second two things, second two of the, the latter two things. Uh, the other possibility could be that you're just lazy or apathetic or you've got blinders on and you're smart enough to understand the problem if you opened your eyes, but you just, you're too busy or you're too tired or you just don't feel like it. You know, we're talking about the injustice of life and how unfair everything is, you know, you, some of you might feel like, I don't, I don't feel like that. I mean, life's great. What, what's the problem? Well, yeah, because you, you're always on the winning side. You know, that's easy to feel that way. But open your eyes and you'll see that this is a pretty difficult puzzle here, pretty hard problem. That's the second possibility. Or the third possibility. So again, we're talking about if you've never been angry at God and felt like this, this test is, is a joke and you're trying to screw with me. Could be because you're stupid. Could be because you're lazy. The third possibility for why you've never felt that way could be because you have cheated and you actually have exactly the right answer. You have the right answer. You have the truth, but you didn't get it in a fair way. You just skipped to the answer key. You just looked at the back of the book and you know, so this explains with Job's friends, how can they be right and yet so wrong? How can somebody have all the right answers and yet fail the test if they cheat? And that's why God is pleased with Job, even though Job actually has all the wrong answers. And he condemns Job's friends, even though they have all the right answers, because who does the teacher like more? The student who actually struggled and tried on their own, or the student who cheated their way to a perfect score, well, obviously, obviously the former. And if your paper is not covered with crossed out stuff and erasures and false starts in your attempt to figure out God, then you don't have a right to the, the answers and the truth. This is why on a math test, the teacher always makes you show your work. You have to show your work because it doesn't matter that you got the right answer. It matters how you got there. It matters that you knew how to get there for yourself. And if you don't, then your, your relationship with God isn't real in a very fundamental sense. You know, you can't just, you can't pare it back something you heard somebody else say. You get to heaven. Well, I believe that Jesus is the Son of God and he died for my sins and rose again on the third day. Do you think, I mean, God, it's not like he's going to be tricked if you, you know, memorized it from your friend on the way in the door. You have to fight for it. You have to fight for it yourself. And if you don't, not only is your own relationship with God stunted, but like we've been saying all along with Job's friends, you can seriously hurt other people because if they're struggling and you come along and say, well, it's easy, here's the answer, even though it is the answer, even though you have the truth, well, either one of two things is going to happen. Either you're just going to add to their pain, pour salt in the wound because they can't see it, or 
you're going to tempt them to become a cheater like you and you know, just say, oh, okay. The essence of, of Satan's three temptations to Jesus in the wilderness, take a shortcut. Take a shortcut. And that's what you're doing. And you, if you do that, if you tempt them to become a cheater like you, it's like Jesus says to the Pharisees, great, you cross land and sea with the truth. You cross land and sea with the truth to make a convert, and you turn him into twice the son of hell that you are. We misunderstand two things about the Pharisees. First, we misunderstand just how seriously Jesus disliked them. And this is Jesus. He's pure love. He's pure compassion. And yet he cannot stand these guys. He's like allergic to them. But the other thing we misunderstand is, is who they were. We've built up all these uh, layers around them to try to insulate ourselves from them. You know, Pharisees, like they're these big villains. No. The Pharisees, that's us. That's the church folk. The Pharisee is not about legalism. It's not about Judaism. It's not about any of those things you've heard. Here's the problem with the Pharisees. They had the truth, and they hadn't worked for it. And so they just dispensed it willy-nilly. And Jesus said, you can't do that. You just can't do that. I want to share with you an example of what this has looked like in my own life. This is growing up, so it's a while ago now, but it's something I continue to struggle with. Um, and, you know, when I share this, it's slightly disturbing, and you're going to feel like, okay, well, that has nothing to do with me. You know, he's just a really weird, precocious, odd little kid. Um, and I, that's not it. I mean, that is it, but I don't, think that's the, I don't think that's the only thing going on here. I don't think that it's just that I'm weird. I think that it could be that uh, a lot of people have thoughts like this, they just don't realize it. Church people I'm talking about. Uh, and and I'm, I just happen to be kind of ultra self-conscious. So what it was is I remember as a, a kid, like nine or 10 years old, you know, older elementary school, I remember having the thought and, you know, it's not like I thought about it all the time, but I still remember it. So I must have thought about it more than once. I remember uh, thinking about if my parents died in a car crash. And part of this could just have to do with the way that uh, orphanhood is so glorified in kids' movies, you know, which I've realized watching kids' movies with my girls, it's like all the heroes are orphans. So it could be that. Uh, but anyway, I would, I would think, about, uh, think about if my parents died in a car crash. And, you know, I'd gone to church every Sunday since... Uh, my first Sunday of being alive. And I would think about if they died in a car crash, and I would think about their funeral at the church. And I would think about speaking at their funeral at the church. And I would think about getting up and saying, you know, uh, I, I really miss my parents. But one of the things my parents taught me was Romans 8.28, that God works all things together for the good of those who love him. And so I know that God will use even this for good. And then here's the really gross part. I would think about then afterwards how people would just be so blown away by that perspective and that amount of spiritual insight. Nine or 10 years old. Uh, it's disgusting. You know, it's very, very perverse. I don't think anybody did anything wrong 
to get me to that point. I don't think my parents did anything wrong. I don't think my church did anything wrong. I don't think it was wrong of them to teach me Romans 8.28, that God works all things together for good. They, they did right, but there was still something wrong in my heart that nobody had to teach me, where you just want the, the easy answers. And I was so sure of the answers before. I had memorized all the answers before I had even thought to ask the question. And you say, well, yeah, that's just you. You know, you're a kid growing up in church. That has nothing to do with me. I'm an adult. But are you an adult spiritually? Are you an adult spiritually? Have you really questioned these truths that you've been taught, that people have given you about why God is good and how God is good? Because he is good. And Romans 8.28 is true. He does work all things together for good. But, you know, you're going to have one or two responses when I say that. When I say God works all things together for good, realize what I'm saying. I'm saying even the worst things. So think about the worst thing that's ever happened to you. I'm saying, yeah, God will, God will take that and work it together for good. Well, either your response when you hear me say that is, well, F you, man. You know, like, I, that's, how could you say such a thing? In which case, good. You know, go do the work. Go do the work and take that complaint to God. But, on the other hand, if your response when I say that is, God works all things together for good, if your response is amen, be very careful. Be very, very careful that you haven't just taken the answers and refused to walk through the darkness for yourself. Let's pray. Father, we want answers. We want to finish the problem. We want to pass the test. We want to wrap up all these questions and move on to other things. But what we see in the Bible is that you want something else. You want us. You want a relationship with us. Not that we can put on the shelf once we've figured everything out, but where we have to walk hand in hand with you every day. We're blown away that you want that, that you care about that, that you want to know us like that. And we're embarrassed that we don't want the same thing, that we don't desire you the way you desire us. I pray this morning that you would Give us some impression of your love if we're walking in darkness. That you give us some glimmer of hope as we continue to press you for the answers and take our case to you. On the other hand, if we've come to the answers too easily, I ask that you would disturb us, that you would mess with us, that you would humble us, and sow some seeds of doubt so that we can struggle and get not just the answers, but get you. We pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. We'll head now into a time of response as we do every week at this point in the service.
which means you can do a couple of things. In the first place, you can go and receive prayer. It could be prayer about anything. It could be prayer...